0: Hey, uh, let's get to work on this psalm uh, that Nick just read to us this morning and, uh, and, and crack into that and see what there is for us there. And I'll pray and then uh, we'll get into it. Loving well, mean, God, how good. Um, that one of the things that we know about you is that you are a constant... Stable God, that you stay the same through the ages, that, that, that your love and your promises, your faithfulness, your goodness, they don't shift, they don't change with time and culture, uh, that we can trust them to always be there. The life in you is fullness of joy uh, and pleasures that are not just limited to this uh, passing age, but, but what we experience in you now in this life, we, we will experience in you in greater measure forevermore. As we look into your Word this morning, uh, would your Spirit warm our hearts with affection and confidence in you, in those characteristics of you? And, and, and would we see more clearly than the Psalmist got to see? Would our confidence be more informed because we have the picture of of Jesus, the promise that the Psalmist tr- trusted has actually been made known to us, has actually entered into our world? We, we have this complete a picture of your goodness to us that we can have confidence in. And we just pray this morning that that your spirit will work in our hearts as we look into this psalm. Well, I'll probably say it each week because who knows who's listening and who knows hasn't been part of the Summer Psalms series. Uh, we kind of called it "A Songs in the Storm." We're looking at at the Psalms, and we've for the last three years, this has been our rhythm we, to get into the start of the year, uh, to turn to the Psalms, to kind of calibrate our hearts and our minds as we begin a new year. Before we do things like before we do things like launching ministries, before we start to get into some some series in the Bible, uh, before we try to work out how we will set up to be a COVID fluid kind of a church that can bounce and respond to you know, whatever traffic lights rolling or whatever um, you know, restrictions we have, all those things. We just want to, want to pause and frame all of that the year ahead through the lens of the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God. And that's what the Psalms help us do. Indeed, I would say that every single possible human condition or situation is addressed and described and depicted in the Psalms. And every single one of those environments, we get a model for how to pray. We get a model for how to respond. How to bring the situation into the goodness and the greatness and the glory of God, so that so that we we burst forth with. Confession, We burst forth with joy, lament, worship, whatever it is. We're shaped by, by it. As I was out, I was out riding my bike uh, earlier in the week trying to get fit and doing a couple of bike rides, and I listened to uh, podcasts as I go along. And uh, I was listening to a podcast by a guy called Trevor Joy. He was preaching at the village and, and, and he, he summed up the Psalms really great. I, I just loved it so much that when I got home I sort of wrote it down and I thought I'd just share it with you because um, this is just a great way of understanding the Psalms. So Trevor Joy, and I think this is the way uh, his church has framed their, their Psalms. The Psalms are unique in that they teach us to pray by bringing every thought and emotion in the human experience into the context of God's story. Through the Psalms, our hearts, whether they're broken or whether they're bursting, become aligned with God's heart. The Psalms help lead our thinking and our feeling Godward. That wherever we are in life, whatever befalls us, whether that's pleasure or pain, the words that come from God become the steps by which we find God. Now, that last bit is probably true of all Scripture. The words that come from God become the steps by which we find God. But in the Psalms, uh, we have these case studies uh, of how that takes place. So they so they resonate with our lives in really super practical ways. They give us the foundations to live out of uh, that, that are that are timeless, that can go from, from one kind of environment and they transport into ours. Or, or perhaps more accurately, they, they move our hearts, they, they, they move our hearts, God to a foundation, a refuge that is timeless. Uh, timeless in its duration, timeless in its character which is something that this psalm, Psalm 16, kind of frames itself around. This, this psalm is a psalm of, of confidence. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the, if you want a, a genre or, or the, the whole uh, vibe of this psalm, is David's confidence in God. and and, and the life that he's had with him and the ongoing life that he will have with him. Now, we don't have too many things in this world that we can place our ultimate confidence in. In fact, given enough time, most things, in fact all things, will pass away. Uh, I was listening to Timothy Keller and he noted, uh, and he notes this all the time, but there's kind of the major foundations of the, of the, of the world, whether that's kind of matter, you know, what, what things are made out of, whether that's intellect, like how we think, our, our thoughts, and, and we, or whether that's emotions, our relationships, how we, how we feel about things. All of these subjects, uh, all of these frameworks are, are all passing away. None of them are permanent. Given enough time, the temporary configurations of energy that hold matter together will one day be no more. Like This, this stool will eventually you know, fall apart, decompose. All, all things are breaking down. There's nothing that's permanent, some faster than others. Entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I'm not a physicist, not claiming to be, but I went and read all about it. All things tread to, trend towards disorder, More specifically, the second law of thermodynamics states that as one goes forward in time, the net entropy, that's the degree of disorder, of any isolated or closed system will increase, as in it will get more disordered, it will break down more rapidly, or it's just going to stay the same. What it will not do is slow down or stop. All things are passing away. Sandy and I were watching... uh, Netflix series uh, called, um, uh, I think it's called Alias Grace. Like, don't judge, you don't know what it is yet, or have you seen it? I don't know. But it's a story of some girl, I think, who she's like a servant girl. It, it's set back in the 19th century. Uh, she's been convicted of murdering her masters, the people that she works for, I think. Anyway, one of the ways, there's all this story, but they're trying to work out whether she's sane, whether she's competent. And one of the ways they do that is they, they bring in this crazy device, this, this Thing and they stick it on her head to measure how big her head is. That was cutting-edge medical, uh, mental science in the 19th century, that your, your intelligence was attached to the size of your head. Now, there was another Alice uh, who, who kind of solved this problem. We kind of shudder at how naive that is, how stupid that is. But intellectual foundations... Thinking that was cutting edge in one generation crumbles as the next one comes along. Things that were written 20 years ago that that held society together are, are now obsolete, or some of them are even considered hateful, harmful. Like everyone in this room holds some ideas and some thoughts that maybe in 20 or 30 years' time you will be embarrassed that you held them that may be considered old-fashioned, out-of-date, hateful. There's no intellect, no philosophy, no, no thought, no, no framework of human thinking that, that remains permanent. They always give way. They, sh- they change. They don't remain. This is true of the foundations of our relationships, our, our experience of life. In this life will one day take everything from you. All relationships, take everything you love. There is nothing that you hold dear that is not vulnerable to being torn apart, to being taken away, you know. People get angry. Things break up. They hold grudges. They never talk to each other again. They could, or, or maybe it's not like that. Maybe they just move into state and, and, and relationships fade. People, they fall out of love, you know. One day you like blue M&M's, the next day you like yellow M&M's. Your, your feelings, your emotions, these things change. Uh, there's no relationship that's permanent. You know what? There's someone sitting in this room who will one day either see, read, or hear about the death of everybody else in this room. Nothing is permanent. Someone, there's someone sitting here going, that's going to be me, yes. Yeah, that's, I'm doing that. But we know there's nothing really that permanent in this world. So what we need in an impermanent world is a refuge that cannot be shaken or doesn't perish. A message, a truth that doesn't change, that doesn't shift with culture or human thought. A love that we can't lose, that we can't be separated from. We need eternal foundations that will fill us with confidence, joy, so that we can actually take pleasure in this life. Uh, rather than 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 be prone to sorrows and insecurities, well, that's the foundation of this psalm. That's what it sings about. This psalm is the psalm of confidence in God to be in eternal foundations for those who take refuge in Him, who delight in Him, who submit to Him, who who take His counsel. Trevor Joy, who 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 read out that um description of the Psalms, made this observation in the podcast that I was listening to, that this Psalm is describing a supernatural courage and joy, one that doesn't come from this world, one that comes from from God, that is produced when God is both our Yahweh and our Adonai who gets not merely our worship as creator, but our allegiance as king. And the reason that he says that is because of how this psalm starts, how, how the psalmist frames up this whole psalm. The psalmist begins his song, if you like, his cry. This is, this is David just talking to his soul, all right, with a cry for refuge. And it's not that he doesn't already have, currently have refuge. Now, the psalm doesn't lend itself to a situation of peril, but he is—he is declaring that he needs refuge, and that he—that he's in need of ongoing refuge, continued refuge. He is in ongoing, continued need of God's uh, care and oversight, so that he can continue to to honor God with his life, continue to enjoy life that is that is filled with the good things that come uh, when God is your portion, when He's cup, when He's the cup that, that you have. This is about the posture of the heart. How does it approach God? Here the psalmist's position is, is one of joy and confidence that comes from an ongoing relationship with God who says that, he's, that, that Yahweh, Lord, in capitals, whenever, whenever you read Lord, you know, Tim told us, uh, in capitals it's Yahweh, uh, this, this God, This is the God who has existed eternally. This is the God who has always been. This is the distinction that they made, Yahweh God. Well, God made it himself in in Exodus 3 when he says, you know, I am, that's who I am. I've just always been. I'm the creator of all things. I'm unchanged in how I relate to these things. I'm unchanged in, in how I communicate with these things. And he says, that God, Yahweh, Lord, he says, you are my Adonai, Lord, with little Uh, Lowercase words. So Yahweh, king of the universe, you are my lord, you are my master. You are my king, my ruler of my life. I invite you to exercise your power and your authority over my life to counsel me, to determine the lots, to, 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 to determine the lines, the boundaries of my life. God is not merely for this psalmist uh, sovereign universally. He's sovereign personally. God, who is creator and king of the universe, is also creator and king of his soul. King of our world, king of our lives. Unfortunately, sadly, too many Christians have settled for Yahweh, you know, king of the universe, creator of the universe, without ever experiencing the full power of Adonai. We're happy for a sovereign God of the universe to be interested in our lives, but master of our lives, the one who gets to call the shots. Often what God finds is that many people want God to do what his word says he can do without giving him the right to own them, without giving him the right to be their Lord, to be their master, commander of their souls. But David has found that his joy and his courage, his confidence in life comes from recognizing that he does not need to be in control. He needs to be in right relationship with the God who is in control, in right relationship with the God who needs nothing. Yahweh needs nothing. That's why it's just a great place to rest He's not asking anything of you. He doesn't want anything from you. Like, What could you give to Yahweh God? But everything good about this God already exists and He's dialing it to you as He is Lord and Master of your life. No good thing do I have apart from you. You see how He's stringing this together? Preserve me, O God, continue to be my high king of heaven and, and lord of my heart. May I seek your face more than the gifts of your hands. I have no good apart from you. You are my highest treasure, a foundation that cannot change or be taken, a commitment of love that I cannot lose. The next verse of David's song of confidence relates to his relationship with other believers. Sandy's going to talk about this this morning. This is David's team, the saints. They're his team. And he loves to be with them and he loves to share life with them. David knows that the Christian life, that the life of a believer cannot be lived in isolation from other believers. He needs to be around those who share his worship. He needs to be encouraged by those who share his allegiance to God. David knows it. One of the good gifts of God is his people of God. Delight is found in being in community with them. There's no other family, no other uh, organization, no other uh, institutional society that David gets encouragement to seek after God from as the greatest treasure in life, as something to find joy in. There's no other setting... uh, Like that, where David shares his own experience of God and of God's presence. There's no other experience where David can share his need of grace. No other experience where he can express his worship, uh, you know, share the refuge that he needs, be able to confess his inadequacies. This is a space with the saints. And only with the saints that David is encouraging uh, himself to delight in and, and, and by extension encouraging us that that, that is a space to delight. In. Like If you truly treasure God, then being with his people should be as desirable as pursuing God himself, should be like the air we breathe, should be one of the foundations that hold us in place. David is saying we need the church, we need to be in community with those who share our experience of God's power and lordship in in Jesus as we have it in our lives. And not just our shared need of that, but, but our shared joy of that. David's like, my song. This song about God needs to be sung in a choir. It's not a soloist kind of thing. This song has parts and harmonies, only finds its full expression when it's sung together. Those who treasure God find the full expression of that as they, as they share it with others. And David contrasts those who delight in this shared pursuit of God um, as foundational for a good life of those who run after other objects, other entities to deliver their, their joy and their pleasure and their meaning, their security. And we may find the description of, of God's a little irrelevant, maybe, or even archaic. However, we, we, all kinda, we all worship something. We all live for something. We all depend on something. And if that something is not God, then, then we need substitutes. So they, they built substitutes. Essentially all that's changed between the gods that those of David's time pursued after and ours is the way we display and worship these gods. Our gods, temples, places of worship, Snapchat and Instagram, Chadston, maybe universities, Monash, Bunnings, whatever lane it is that brings you meaning and significance. And our offerings as we run after them are things like our money and our time and our relationships, and we pour them all out on an altar called Meaning. David's warning is that that is a path to sorrow because these gods are temporary. Beauty, wealth, pleasure, health, academic achievement are all temporary. And if you built your life on them, if they are where you find your meaning, your deepest treasure, your greatest joy, that's where you take refuge in, then, then you're going to know multiplied sufferings because these things are not permanent. These things go, these things will possibly even betray you. And David doubles down in verse 4. As good as these things are, these things are actually good. There's nothing inherently evil or bad about you know, keeping yourself in shape. That's why I try and ride a bike. Um, there's nothing inherently bad about power, achievement or wealth until they become treasures and uh, uh, the you know, masters of your soul and in your heart. And then they enslave you and disappoint you because they're needy gods. They're temporary gods. And David says, these things will never be the song of my lips, the treasure of my heart. There'll be things that I experience that help me, that point me to the greater treasure and may aid my song, but they will never be what I ultimately sing about. No, no rather, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup, the holder of my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This is David again. He's just preaching to his soul, he's just singing to himself. Here David sweeps up the sufficiency and the satisfaction of the pleasure and delight found in God. It's what he's doing. It's as if a banquet table of the greatest delights and experiences is set before him and he's just looking at some of the the best meals and best wines you can imagine and he's like, just serve me a portion of God. Just let me sip from that grace. Just serve up for me what God has planned for me. Just feed me on his sovereign provision. Whatever God has for me is better than anything I could ever dream up. It's kind of what lies behind what he says in Psalm 38 and verse 4. He says, taste and see. Come and experience God and then contrast that with anything else the world has to offer. Taste and see that the Lord is actually good. This is reinforced by David's description of the the lines falling in pleasant places and an inheritance that's in store for him. Lines and inheritance they can refer to geographical boundaries and properties, and and possibly in view here. But David's lines that that, that he has in view are the lines and the boundaries, uh, the design for life that God has placed around David before. David. These lines lead David to God himself. The reward as David kind of lives and operates inside these lines and boundaries, they lead him to God. The reward from these things is actually more of God. That's his reward. That's his inheritance. John Piper describes these lines as being fenced in by the sovereign goodness of God. God's design for life is his provision and care for you. Because it is a pathway that leads to life, that leads to increased joy in God. And it's not fading. It's permanent. It is a path uh, in life that leads to the presence of God where, where fullness of joy is experienced at the right hand of God forevermore. That's what's been pictured in this Psalm. All commentators uh, that, that I read, that I listened to agree that the, the phrase in Psalm six, pleasant places, and the phrase in verse uh, sorry, the phrase in verse six and the phrase in verse eleven uh, at your right hand are pleasures, they're the same Hebrew phrase. David is explaining, or at least understands, that the rich experience of life, the deep satisfaction that comes from God's design for life are. Uh, has eternal qualities, that this sufficiency, this satisfaction, uh, the sovereignty of God actually extends beyond this life, that it doesn't terminate with death. And when we're thinking about God's good design for life, Jesus gives us the most condensed description of this. We find it in Mark 12, we find it in Matthew 23 and Luke 10. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. It's a description that says God is to be your highest treasure, like you are to have no affection above him in your life. Your greatest pleasure, your deepest satisfaction. That that's they're the boundaries, they're the lines. And love your neighbour as yourself. Having God as all you need allows you then to move. With generosity, grace, mercy, justice towards others. Because you're not, you're not needing anything from anyone anymore. You've got everything you need from God. But it's not merely uh, moving towards them with justice, mercy, and love. But it's also moving toward them in a way that they too would come to know and experience the love of God as you experience because that is ultimately loving your neighbor yeah? Now, does that fill you with joy? Because that's God's design for life. Is that you would know him and enjoy him forever. And then you would go and share that joy and knowledge with others. Delighting with the saints. At God's right hand forever. That's your inheritance. You get God and you get to share him with his people. Fill you with joy? Should David pushes on, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel uh, in in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because at his right hand, uh, because at his he is at my right hand, and I shall not be shaken. Another reason God David delights in God is because God doesn't leave David to find these boundaries, these lots for his life by himself. God has been counselling David, been instructing David with His Word, with the Scriptures. David, what David knows about God has been revealed to him. David also, you know, he himself receives divine revelation. He has prophets speak to him. He knows stuff about God. And Psalm 119 is this expose that David wrote uh, on, on how the Word of God holds David in place. Living in God's Word is like is literally like having God at your right hand. And you know that coffee cup verse here is like a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. You can't be shaken. You can't be dislodged. You can't lose your certainty, even at night when there's no way to see God. God is still at work through his counsel, through his word, through his promises and David's heart just sleeping on his bed like, yeah, no, that's what God said to me. Yeah, Hmm. that's kind of cool. David's rehearsing his confidence in God. There's kind of a principle here. We should rehearse the gospel to ourselves. You know, when David is done reminding himself about his experience of God, And how that refuge and that treasure, that portion, that cup, that counsel is not temporal. It's eternal uh, in in its state, in its inheritance. He just explodes with joy. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure like body and soul. Therefore, in light of everything I have just been singing to my soul, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices body and soul I am happy. That happiness is permanent and secure. I have a supernatural courage and joy that is produced when God is both my Yahweh and my Adonai, who gets not only my worship as creator, but my allegiance as king, a refuge that can't be shaken or doesn't perish, a message, a counsel that does not change, a love I can't lose, an eternal inheritance and foundation of joy. And David just kind of backs over his understanding of God's promise to him uh, from his counsel, from everything that God has made known to him. That even though God has told him uh, in his counsel to David in Samuel 2 that he's going to die just like Jacob, just like Isaac. His body's going to be put in a tomb, going to rot into the ground. This will not be a state of abandonment. David understands that the relationship he has with God, the joy, the satisfaction does not terminate with death. Unlike all other things, God's goodness, his portion, his cup to David's going to endure. It's going to keep going. And that hope, however clearly David understood it, is tied to the, a promise that he got in the same spot that he, where he was told he was going to die in Samuel 2.7. God plans at some point in the future to establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom through one of his descendants. And this descendant is going to make all good things permanent. And both Peter and Paul in Acts 2 and 13 let us know that this, this promise that David trusted in, the, in that death would not be the end of his refuge and his delight and his portion with God came into realisation through the person of Jesus. The whole story and everything we see in Jesus is the promise of that David was given. like David only had a promise to to secure him, to give him this kind of courage. We have Jesus. All that David had was the promise. And when he wrote this psalm, and like I don't know, as I've read this psalm, I think one of the things that I've struggled with as I've tried to write this sermon is, frankly, there are times where I just can't pray this kind of prayer with all sincerity. Because I know there are times when my heart does not hold God as highest treasure. Is Is David some kind of super Christian? Hardly. We know his story. David would say to me, brother, you need to get back in the lines. You need to run toward their refuge. You need to spend more time with the saints you can't isolate, you need to sit under God's counsel, let it soak your soul night and day until your heart thrills again with his promise. That he is your greatest treasure. And Jesus says to me, Brother, I am that promise. I am the lines. When you fail to keep them, I kept them. I am the refuge. I take the penalty of sin, the sting of death. I am your sufficiency and your satisfaction. I am the life that gives you access to the right hand of God, the place of pleasure, deep heart, satisfaction forevermore. I am the center of the community of the saints, the treasure that warms their hearts with affection for God. I am the message of God's love and counsel to your soul that never leaves you or forsakes you. I am what David longed for. I am what David trusted in. I am the promise. And I am all these things, even when you don't feel it, even when you can't see it. I am an unshakable foundation that cannot crumble. I am a love you cannot lose, a grace you cannot overturn, a joy and a fullness of life that fills your heart, that fills your vision, your portion, your cup, your delight with my goodness. And not yours. Let's pray, Lord. We thank you for these psalms. We thank you for that—the wisdom that we find in them. Thank you for the descriptions of of God that that, that that we can that we can rehearse in our hearts. But most of all, we thank you that as these psalms look forward, they look forward uh, to a promise uh, of your Son Jesus coming and making. These things real in our lives, bringing them into our lives in very tangible ways. We see the, the deepest expression of the permanence of God's love uh, through the life of Jesus. We've, we kind of just skimmed over it this morning, but our story here at Freeway is all about the sufficiency and the supremacy and the goodness of Jesus in our lives. To do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. To secure for us what we cannot secure for ourselves. Lord, as we've listened to this psalm, uh, we pray uh, that you would continue to strengthen us in your counsel and in your presence. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.